Hello and welcome to The Cutting Room. 1.21 gigawatts of movie analysis, trivia, and laughs from all the right movies. Mm. I'm John, and the two slackers with me are Matt. <laughs> Hello. You're a slacker. And Luke. Hello. You're a slacker. Today, we've got a treat for just about everybody, I'd imagine. We're going back in time with the McFlies and the two Bobs to talk a true movie classic. We're sending you back to the future. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Before we do that, though, just to let everybody know that All The Right Movies is a YouTube channel, and what you're listening to now is the audio podcast version of the latest episode of our YouTube show called The Cutting Room. The original video version, along with many other episodes and videos, is available on YouTube, so please head over to our channel to watch and subscribe. We actually started out as a podcast, and you can access our full archive of over 120 podcast episodes on our website, alltherightmovies.com, or by signing up to become an All The Right Movies patron at patreon.com forward slash alltherightmovies. Patrons also gain access to loads of other benefits as well, including an exclusive video episode of The Cutting Room every month, chosen by and created specifically for our patrons. So, as you can see, there's loads from all the right movies to keep you busy, so please check out YouTube and Patreon. But for now, it's back to the film. It was your choice, this one, Luke. So, why do you want to talk about it? Well, it's absolute movie magic. That's why I want to talk about it. A joy (laughs) from start to finish. Uh, One of my earliest memories of watching movies, and I still get the same feelings now watching it. Um, It's got great characters, iconic designs, incredible concept, and the writing is second to none in this kind of film. And I've talked about this in the past, but something that I feel has been lost in modern films, it's, uh, this is an absolute original idea. Most films now are sequels or remakes or adapted from blah, blah, blah. Most big budget films, anyhow. Yeah. But this one is the most original of original ideas. And I'm very much looking forward to revisiting it with you fellas. Yeah, similar for me. I mean, to be honest, I don't think I can remember a time that I didn't know and love Back mm-hmm. to the Future. It's been one of my favourite films, basically, my whole life. I mean, the characters are great. It looks fantastic. It's massively iconic. It was the biggest hit of the year that it came out, 1985, and it's still very highly thought of today. It somehow manages to be extremely 80s and timeless at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Loads of big talents involved in the film, loads of interesting stories about how the film was made, and Marty McFly. I mean, what a guy he is. If anyone ever told me they didn't lay Marty McFly, I'd blame them. Without question. <laughs> That's on you. <laughs> but, <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, huge film, and we're going all in on it, which was always going to happen, wasn't it? Yeah. Always. Our density has brought us here. <laughs> you are my density. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, back to the future for you. Yeah, it, it's very similar to what you said, John. It's just a film that's always been there. I am of the generation when this first came out, and it was just ever-present growing up. It was either on TV or there was a copy in the house, whether it was video all the way through to Blu-ray. And it's one that comes up time and time again in the list of classics of this era, and for good reason. And I think, actually, it's a very interesting blockbuster look to look at because when you think about it, it's actually fairly light in terms of action. And apart from the time travel element, which is obviously, you know, a, a fairly substantial part of it, it's mm. very much rooted in reality. So it's not Raiders, it's not Die Hard, it's not Ghostbusters. It doesn't have that, like, elevated fantasy feel to it, which makes it stand out. I think it's very unique in its field and of its time. And plus, this was an early podcast episode for us, which I wasn't on. So I'm just really excited to talk about it finally. Yeah. Great. Should be good then. So we're heading to Hill Valley 1985, then 1955 to talk Back to the Future. When eccentric scientist Doc Brown builds a time machine out of a DeLorean, skateboarding teenager Marty McFly is thrown back in time to 1955 and, after altering the course of history, must make his parents fall in love, save the Doc's life and prevent his own erasure from existence. Sounds pretty heavy, that. Yeah. (laughs) What is this thing? Heavy. (laughs) Directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by Zemeckis and Bob Gale, Back to the Future was produced by Amblin Entertainment, distributed by Universal, and stars Michael J. Fox as Marty, Christopher Lloyd as The Doc, Leah Thompson as Lorraine Baines McFly, Crispin Glover as George McFly, and Thomas F. Wilson as Biff Tannen. 
What are you looking at, butthead? So how the cutting room works is that we discuss the movie by bringing it down into its key filmmaking components. So for Back to the Future, we're covering off the direction, the writing, the cast, the music, our own individual highlights, and then we'll each give the film a score out of 10. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. both up for that? Oh, yeah. 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 All 10s, I imagine. Well, up first then. <laughs> don't spoil it <laughs> well up first then don't make like a tree just yet we're talking about the director of Back to the Future Robert Zemeckis Back to the Future was Robert Zemeckis' fourth film as director after Beatlemania comedy I Wanna Hold Your Hand satirical comedy Use Cars Hi there. and the action adventure comedy Romancing the Stone hmm. His most well-known movie, though, is surely Back to the Future. So yes. how do we think Robert Zemeckis did here as the director? Matt? Mm. I'm not actually the biggest fan of Zemeckis, but... Ooh, yeah. Slammed. Slammed. Oh, Getting straight in there with a slamming. <laughs> straight in there with a the slamming. You know me. Love to do that. But, yeah, this one is easily his best work, and it is the one film I think, yeah, you know what, I can't imagine anyone improving on what he did here, to be honest, because where I think it's at its strongest is in its storytelling, because that is always very clear, and it's very concise, and it's very logical, because... If you take all the different elements going on in this film, there is a hell of a lot going on and a lot of things that this film needs to establish. And a lot of that is in the writing, which we'll get to, but looking at it from a directorial point of view, just look at that opening credit scene at Doc's Place, that camera pan over all the clocks that establishes mm-hmm. theme and topic, the newspaper clippings in the background, that tells us about Doc's character, so we learn he's an inventor, he's an eccentric, but he's poor. The news that's playing in the background, that sets up the plutonium element of the plot, and then it ends with Marty Endron kicking his skateboard across the floor, which then bumps into the plutonium. So it ties yeah. everything together brilliantly. I mean, that is just brilliant visual storytelling. And yes. I think what's really difficult to do with this story is to manage all those different elements that are going on because at various times, this film has to be exciting, it has to be tense, it has to be really funny, it has to be really romantic. It's set in two different time periods, and Zemeckis just juggles all those plates, keeps them spinning in the air so well. Because just look at the last 40 minutes, what happens there. You go from mm. George Lamp and Biff, which is just so triumphant, a real punch-the-air <laughs> moment, to Earth Angel, which is really emotional, to Johnny B. Good, which Ooh. is really funny, to Doc on the Clock Tower, which is really tense, and then to Marty getting back to save Doc, which is really emotional again. And it mm. all just flows together so brilliantly. And, yeah, it's there on the page, but it's still another job entirely to get it from page to screen. And I think that's where Zemeckis deserves prayer. So, yeah, it's not the most visually striking or impressive film you'll ever see, I think, but it doesn't need to be. It's the storytelling where this excels, and that's all down to Zemeckis. Yeah, well, unlike you, Matt, I do actually quite like Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> I do agree, though, that he's very much a Spielberg-like director. Mm, yeah, There's loads of those knocking about, and I think he's easily the best of them for me. And right. Back to the Future is easily his best film as well. Mm. It's a great story that Zemeckis and Bob Gale came up with, and Zemeckis tells it pretty perfectly, mostly through visuals like a good director does. Mm. I think the tone that he strikes as well is perfection, balancing mm-hmm. the comedy and the drama brilliantly. Yeah. And I mean, it looks superb. Everything looks great. The production design work to create two distinct hill valleys 30 years apart is stunning. Mm. The makeup work to create middle-aged Lorraine, George and Biff is great. And Zemeckis clearly worked really well with the director of photography, Dean Cundy. The mm. camera always seems to be moving. It's quite subtle, but very fluid mm. visually. And I know Cundy said they did that on purpose to create a sense of an unfolding story. And I think it works really well. Nice. I wouldn't say it's 100% perfect visually. I think Marty's fading hand and the animated yeah. fire that runs across the top of the cable in the climax are two shots yeah. that haven't aged very well. No. But that's no big deal breaker for me. Yeah. It is very Spielberg-like in the tone of the visuals. And I would say, to be honest, that it's up there with anything by Spielberg as oh, a wow. film. That's Ooh. how good it is. Whoa, this is heavy. <laughs> and that's so great a job. I think Robert Zemeckis did as a director. Mm. He caught lightning in a bottle for me. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah, very much. And look, Bob Z on PTTF for you. Right, right, right. Get the acronyms right here. Lots of acronyms there for you. That chord first. <laughs> um, very much the same as you, fellas. Um, it's the breakneck speed of the film that I just can't get enough of. Whips along, great balancing of tones, comedy, romance, action. Zemeckis judges the whole thing perfectly. But what gets me hooked straight away, and it's something that Matt has mentioned, is that opening of the film. 
that opening shot with everything in Doc's place where we find out so much, like how many clocks has he got? Yeah. They're like unusual yeah. amount of <laughs> clocks. That's a big theme in the film. Obviously, it's a nod to the time machine from 1960. And then it's Marty's turn. We see the skateboard immediately. We know he's big into his guitar. And then Massive that amp. magnificent, huge amp. Yeah, just close-ups <laughs> on the <Yeah>. dials. <laughs> and then that glorious Power of Love sequence. I just I couldn't be more excited by Marty hitching a ride on the back of cars on his skateboard, <laughs> waving at the chicks doing their calisthenics. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And I just I really loved that as a kid, and I still love it now when that Power of Love kicks in. And it's just all incredible visual storytelling from Zemeckis. What an opening. And somehow he manages to maintain this level of detail and makes everything mm. edge of your seat, visually exciting for near two hours. And yeah. top work from the big man. I think it's, it's incredible. All distilled in that first five, ten minutes. Yeah, he did do a brilliant job as a megas, but it wasn't a smooth journey to get the film made. Mm. The idea for Back to the Future had actually came to Bob Gale when he was rummaging around in his parents' basement and he came across his dad's old high school yearbook and wondered if they'd have been friends. Gale and Zemeckis nice. then turned that idea into a script and they then showed that script to their pal Steven Spielberg, who was mm. not the worst pal to have if you're trying to get a film made. No. And Spielberg no. loved it. Loved it. Obviously, <laughs> I couldn't believe what an accomplished and fun piece of writing it was. Spielberg was up for producing it, so to get funding, Zemeckis and Gale sent the script to basically every studio in Hollywood. The script, the script for Back to the Future, was rejected by Hollywood Studios. Do you know how many times? No, I think it was it was an easy. It's easy double figures, wasn't it? Forty-four times. Wow. wow. Said no. Some studios weren't comfortable with the relationship between Doc and Marty. Is Doc Brown like a child molester or something? Mm -hmm. And Disney said no because they said it was about incest. Yeah. Because a mother has the hot for her son. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. However, Zemeckis then made Romancing the Storm. That was a massive hit. And suddenly, studios wanted to make Back to the Future. I mean, you can't go wrong with Romancing the Storm either. Oh, yeah. but it's got so much fun. But I can feel the spirit of that film here as well. It's got action, comedy, romance, mm. the same as in here, everything a grown boy needs. Perfect. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Another visually iconic part of Back to the Future is the use of the DeLorean car as yeah. the time machine. Ooh. It's so striking, in fact, that we have a Patreon question about it. So one of the benefits of being in All the Right Movies Patreon is that we'll answer your questions on the show. And James Ozipu has a question. So... Yes, James. Hi, guys. So my question is, where do you rank the DeLorean amongst cinema's most iconic cars? Thanks very much. Great question from James there. Mm -hmm. Thank so you, James. What do, yeah, what do you think of the DeLorean, Luke? I mean, I'm not a car person at all, really, um, which will probably come across in my answers here. But I've always been fascinated <laughs> by the DeLorean since I was young. It's that mm. space, space age design, the sleekness, and those doors yeah. that open upwards. I mean, Great. that was something unbelievable when I was younger. Still is. <laughs> yeah. Still is. <laughs> really cool, really sexy. Always wanted to have a go on a DeLorean. And, and I did look into renting one a few years back. Like not, <laughs> really? not, not being serious, just, you know, if I wanted to, is it possible? Right. Yeah. And it is possible. But they're about $1,500 a day. Wow. To really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does have a, a replica flux capacitor in there, but it's a bit much, isn't it? Yeah, get a few more Perions signing up and yeah. we'll have one of them. <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have a big D out in one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the DeLorean's always been up there for me, rivaled only by the Ecto-1 Ghostbusters car. Of course, right. So okay. both movie cars that are either an old banger or one that looks great but is completely unreliable. I like the imperfections. <laughs> <laughs> well, as great as DeLorean is, Dot Brown's time machine wasn't always going to be a DeLorean. Do you know what it was originally? What is it, a refrigerator? Well, in the first draft of the script, the time machine was a time chamber, like right. a room with a big gun in the middle, like on James mm. Bond, there was that Marty back in time. Right. That then changed to, like you say, a big old 50s-style refrigerator <laughs> that Marty <laughs> would climb into, and then the fridge would travel back in time. Yeah. So Mecca scrapped that idea when he realised the time machine needed to be mobile, and he hired two artists, Ron Cobb and Andrew Probert, to design a DeLorean-based time machine. And they mm. did a pretty good job, I think it's fair to say. Yes. Yeah, amazing. But... Yeah, for me, I love Ecto-1 as well. Fantastic. I also love Tim Burton's Batmobile. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. But it's the DeLorean, no question, for me, is movie car number one, easily. Yeah. 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 And Matt, where's the DeLorean sit for you in the movie car hall of fame? 
I think I would agree with you too, actually, because the thing about the DeLorean is that famously it was a flop as an actual car and the company went bust. So yeah. that makes it stand out all the more for me because I look at it and it feels like they constructed it for this film and this film alone. I can't imagine anyone driving this in real life. I just yeah. imagine it ex existing in the Back to the Future universe. So that's why I'd probably put it number one as well. Wow. Well, one of the most famous shots in the film is around the DeLorean, where it travels through time, vanishes, and leaves behind the flaming tire tracks. Mm, yeah, ILM did the visual effects, and to create the moment where the DeLorean time travels, they did quite a bit of work. So they had two tire tracks laid out in gasoline and set them on fire so the flames shoot up the gasoline tracks. They recorded that and sped up the footage. Mm. Yeah. They then recorded the stunt rider driving a DeLorean and superimposed it on top of the tire tracks footage. The driver wore masks so he looked like Einstein. I mean, the dog, obviously, not yeah. Albert. <laughs> <laughs> and the point where they removed the car, they added the lightning bolts and puffs of smoke. I mean, none of it's particularly complex stuff, I don't think, no. but mm. the effect it creates is just fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's I love amazing. It. Yeah, of course. Looks incredible. So the DeLorean then, a great movie car, and Bob Zemeckis, a great job on Back to the Future, mm -hmm. and his best film, we think? Easy. Oh, hands down. Yeah. Yeah. The Back to the Future screenplay was a co-writing credit between the two Bobs, Zemeckis and Gale. Mm. They'd been writing together since their days as USC students, and this was their fourth writing collaboration. I mentioned two earlier in I Want to Hold Your Hand and Then Use Cars. Mm. Do you know what the other one was before Back to the Future? Mm. No, I don't. No, I don't. They wrote the groundbreaking 1941. Oh, of course. Oh, of course they did, yeah. Mm, terrible. Yeah. Ground, mm. yeah, groundbreaking, as in it was Steven Spielberg's first ever turkey at the box office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they'd written three films together, as a Megas and Gale, and not a hit amongst them. Three flops. Mm. Mm. How was their writing here, though, on Back to the Future? Luke? I think the writing is probably the best of the big blockbusters in the decade, to be honest. I can roll. It's just everything that a film like this should be for me, without being too cutesy-poo and family-friendly. There's dark and edgy moments in there, like bulletproof vests at the end and Biff's overly aggressive behaviour, particularly towards Lorraine, probably wouldn't fly today. Yeah. But these elements really add the depth to the film and make the resolutions right at the end that much sweeter. Mm. And, I, I mean, there isn't a greater sight than a subservient Biff in his green Adidas <laughs> all-in-one at the end. Incredible visuals. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> like Bobby Charlton. <laughs> but I'd say that the film is—I'd uh, say that the film's likely to be offensive to Libya and Libyans. The Libyans. And I don't know who thinks yeah. it's a good idea to have a mother attracted to her own son as a major <laughs> point in the film. But despite that part, but that really never feels all that weird, does it? Somehow no, I don't know how to pull it, it off. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I know, know how, how they've done it, but the tone is judged just right. Yeah. Um, what I really love in the screenplay are the little details. Re-elect Mayor Goldie Wilson at the start of 1985. Marty gives Goldie the inspiration when he's working in the diner yeah. in 55. Mayor! Twin Pines Mall turns into Lone Pines Mall at the end yep. after Marty totals one of Old Man Peabody's pines in 55. <laughs> Uncle J Bird Joy, Pepsi free. You want a Pepsi, you've got to pay for it. All, all amazing <laughs> stuff. <laughs> And the setups and payoffs that happen all the way through the film, like Save the Clock Tower at the start, that comes into play a massive at the end to get Marty home. Marty doesn't play or can't play at the school dance in 85, he gets rejected. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. Too darn loud, but then he does in 1955, beautiful. Mm, yeah. And there are mm, dozens yeah. more, it's littered yeah. with them, they happen all the way through the film and they give the film so many layers, which is why it's so rewatchable. The reason that I still feel the way that I did when I watched it when I was young, it's thrilling stuff, incredible example of writing. Yeah, I agree. I think the writing's brilliant. I mean, like you touched on there, Luke, I've never seen a film that sets things up and then pays them off later in the film so well as Back to the Future mm -hmm. does. Amazing. The first act is almost non-stop set up, but somehow you don't even notice. It should probably be jarring, yeah. but it's not. Mm. And the narrative itself is a very good concept. It's fleshed out into a great story. The unusual thing is that the main character and Marty doesn't really have an arc. He's basically the same at the end of the film as he is at the mm. start. Mm. You're not supposed to do that, but I think the reason that works is because Marty doesn't change, but he does change everyone around him. George has a huge yeah. arc, but mm. Lorraine changes too, and so does Doc by the end. They all have arcs as a direct result of meeting Marty. Yeah. And yeah, there's 
a lot of great things about Back to the Future. And at the core of it all, I think, is a script that I would say is pretty much perfect. All-time wow. great level writing, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And Matt, what do you think of Bob and Bob's writing on this one? Yeah, it's that word. It, it's payoff, isn't it? Because it does mm. this so well. Because there's not just one layer of jeopardy here either. It's not just that Marty has ended up back in the 50s. He has no fuel to get back. And not only does he have no fuel, he's now interfered with his parents' relationship, so he has to fix that. But he has yeah. to fix that yeah. on the same night. He has to use the lightning storm to toss the flux capacitor, <laughs> which he only has one shot at. And if he doesn't do that, then he can't get back to the 80s to save Doc's life. So the way this script just lays in level of jeopardy after jeopardy is incredible. And as you guys are saying, there's so much at stake, but the script pays them all off beautifully it's such a joy to see all those elements click together at the end it's like if you've ever built like a really like complicated set of lego it's like putting the last few bricks together and you just think ah it just slots in brilliantly and it's doing all (laughs) this while making an incest subplot really funny I mean, yeah. like incest in film is something you should only get in like a Lars von Trier film or something like that. <laughs> should be nowhere near some blockbuster, and yet it's in there and it's really funny. I do think there's a couple of elements I thought on the last rewatch like stuck out as not aging particularly well. And firstly, I think you Lorraine is. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you know, well, you know, we'll we'll see at the end. We'll see. We'll see how sure I am at the end. I think Lorraine is a character isn't written particularly well in respect to the romantic angle of the film because I think she is essentially attracted to whoever the plot needs her to be attracted to. Oh my God, he's a dream. So at the beginning, it's all about Marty. She's obsessed with him. And it does a decent job of suggesting that she knows something's wrong with him when she kisses Mm. him. That kind of works. But to then immediately pretty much fall in love with George instead feels a bit convenient because that's what the plot needs to happen there and then. Okay. And I think the idea that she falls for George just because he smacks out another bloke, it, it just makes her seem a little shallow, I think. That's all it takes to impress her. So <laughs> yeah. it, it still kind of works because Thompson and Glover are excellent and you're totally bought into them as characters. And Zemeckis' move in the film at such a pace that I just go, yeah, don't quite buy it, but I'm going to go along with it. It's fine. Mm. Yeah. And the other element that hasn't aged particularly well for me is it's very materialistic in that 80s kind of way. So... It's not enough for Marty to get back to his girlfriend, to his family who love him and to save Doc's life. He's got to have a rich family now. And, you know, obviously money is nice to have. And I get that part of this story is he teaches George to stand up for himself. And I guess with that would come more success in life. But it's just very kind of Ronald Reagan greed is good that Marty getting a shiny new car (laughs) at the end is kind of just as important as saving Doc's life. Again, back to his family when... I think if you compare this to something like It's a Wonderful Life, when George gets back to Bedford Falls, in that example, he doesn't care if he's poo, he doesn't care if he's going to prison, he just wants to be back with his family and his wife and his kids and his friends because that's what's really important. So I think from that perspective, Back to the Future just seems a little shallow in comparison. So overall, I do think it is excellently written, but I do think there's a couple of little niggly flaws in there for me. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's fair. I'll have them, Matt. Okay, they're allowed, are they? <laughs> they're making the cut. <laughs> well, I think the story flows so naturally that it's hard to imagine that everything in there wasn't always in there. But mm. some of the script changed quite a lot from the first drafts. Have you heard about any of the first drafts of the screenplay and what changed? Not too mm-hmm. much. All right, well, I've got them here for you. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Marty's surname originally wasn't McFly. It was McDermott. I mean, I prefer McFly. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Can't imagine a band called McDermott, can you? (laughs) (laughs) Emmett Brown originally wasn't a doctor. He was Professor Brown. And he didn't have a pet dog called Einstein. He had a pet chimp called Shemp. That Mm. was changed by Sid Sheinberg, the head of Universal, who said, no film with a chimp ever made money. (laughs) And Bob Gale said to him, hang on a minute, what about Every Which Way But Loose? And Mm. And Sheinberg said... That's an orangutan, not a chimp. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong, Split to be fair. Bit. Subtle difference. Yeah. <laughs> he knows the simians. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this unbelievable story about the the title of the film you mentioned and Sid Sheinberg there. You would think that Back to the Future, pretty perfect, pretty iconic. But 
Mm. One man who thought it was less than wonderful, in his words, less than wonderful, was Sid Sheinberg. He was president of Universal Pictures. He sent Spielberg a memo in October 84 suggesting an alternative title. The title was inexplicably Spaceman from Bluto. Terrible. <laughs> just, yeah, bad. bad <laughs> Trip, joint, trips bad off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he claimed that this suggestion had heat, quotes, heat originality, and it projected fun. <laughs> heat. <laughs> and that it avoided the film sounding like a genre time travel movie. So what we'll do is we'll not make the title relate to the actual film narrative. We'll mm. make it about something completely different and also make yeah. it sound like a crappy genre picture at the same time as well. Yeah. From, from the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he had some notes like, uh, to change it to, to suit the title, have Sherman Peabody call Marty from Marty, a spaceman from Pluto, when he sees him when he goes back to 1955. Hey, that you son of a bitch! Have Marty right. call himself Spaceman from Pluto instead of Darth Vader from Vulcan and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Change the title of George's novel at the end of Spaceman from Pluto. You can see where it's going. <laughs> He's crowbarring them in. Yeah. A serious suggestion as well. Obviously, Spielberg couldn't believe his eyes, and he got around it in the best way possible. He replied, saying, quote, Hi, Sid. Thanks for your most humorous memo. We all got a big laugh out of it. Keep them coming. <laughs> he didn't keep them coming. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Terrible. I mean... Back to the Future is a great title yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Spaceman from Pluto is not cool, and it doesn't even make sense no. in no. terms of the film, so no, I don't doesn't. know what he was thinking. No. <laughs> the writing process on Back to the Future was pretty tumultuous then, but it doesn't show great concept, mm. great story, great screenplay, and one of the worst script notes of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God agree, surely. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of The Cutting Room by All The Right Movies is sponsored by the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. Join hosts Abby and Alan, horror and history nerds who have combined their passions to explore the history and folklore behind popular horror movies and horror movie tropes. Recent episodes have delved into the classic universal monsters of The Invisible Man and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. With over 100 episodes, the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast is a vast well of information for horror movie fanatics, Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and on their website, lunaticsproject.com. The link for the site is in the description for this show. Thanks to Lunatics Radio Hour for sponsoring this episode of The Cutting Room by All The Right Movies. And now a word from the Comic Book Club podcast. Take it away, fellas. What is up, everybody? I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And we host Comic Book Club, a weekly live talk show and podcast about comic books, 7 p.m., Crowdcast and YouTube, as well as your regular podcast listening places, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And every week, we bring on the absolute best guests from the world of comic wow, book, right? Comic statement. books, TV, film, we cover everything. You can come be part of the magic and um, uh, lightly insult us throughout our recording, Tuesdays at 7, or just listen on your own time. Yeah, We also have comedians on there as well. It's a fun time. Yes, thanks. It sounds like you're having fun, Pete. Uh, Pete actually <laughs> is the guy who hosts our trivia where you can win a $25 gift card to Midtown Comics every single week. You can use it in the safety of your own home. Come check us out. We would love to chat with you about comic books. Have a little fun. Talk about some old four-color funnies. Ah, nice. Fresh ref to close it out. We've mentioned the cast a bit already, and now we're going to go into more detail on some of them as we each pick our favourite to talk about. So, who are you going for, Matt? Well, I'm going to go for the main man, Michael J. Fox. Um, yeah. I think... Why not? Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's amazing how energetic his performance is, he, because he is filming the sitcom Family Ties at the same time. Go ahead, I'm listening. So mm. he's doing like 20 hour days, seven days a week at times, and it did mm. properly exhaust him. I'll probably work until about 4.35 in the morning, and then I'll sleep more until about uh, six o'clock. You know, he had the driver taking him between sets of the film and the TV show, and his driver at times had to pick him up and carry him to bed because he was just that exhausted. <laughs> but you can't tell. In this performance, no. it, it's nope. one of those where it just fits the actor like a glove. <laughs> And it feels very natural. This isn't the type of performance where I feel, oh, you know, I think Zemeckis probably had to guide him a lot through this. I don't think it's that at all. I think Zemeckis just probably let him go. It's one of those very natural performances where 
Michael J. Fox just is Marty. They are one and the, the same. Yeah. And it's the shield-like <laughs> ability that he has, that youthful charisma that he has mm. that makes Marty such a memorable character. And I think Fox needed to begin that because it kind of makes me laugh a little bit at the beginning. Like Marty does whine a little bit when actually his life is pretty decent. You know, he's got a cute girlfriend. He's got a decent house. The family's all together. Poor from Uncle Joey. He's got an electric yeah. guitar, so he's obviously not poor. He's got a really weird friendship with an eccentric old man. Is Doc Brown like a child molester or something? I mean, what yeah. more does he want in life? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I think in the 1980s sequences, he comes across as a little bit spoiled, I think. Um, but it's once he gets to the 50s that I really, truly warm up to Marty because there he is, that fish out of water. What's with the life preserver? And he just doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And like I say, he's mucked up his parents' relationship. So he's got so many things to fix. And I think Fox handles the comic aspects of it all brilliantly. So, yeah, it's a really charming, very natural, very likable performance from, from Fox here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Michael J. Fox is pretty irreplaceable nowadays. But quite famously, mm -hmm. Michael J. Fox was not the first person cast as Marty, yeah. was mm -hmm. he? No, he wasn't. Mm -hmm. So Zemeckis first choice to play Marty was Michael J. Fox. At the time though, like you mentioned, Matt, J. Fox was working on a sitcom called Family Ties yeah. and the executive producer of Family Ties, Gary Goldberg, wouldn't release Michael J. Fox to do Back to the Future. So Zemeckis had no choice but to go through the typical casting process and people like John Cusack, Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen and Ben Stiller all auditioned. Lorraine, lately I've come to the conclusion that I don't know anything about my parents. And then after Sid Sheinberg pushed for him, Eric Stoltz, who had a couple of hits around that time in Fast Times at Ridgemont mm -hmm. High and Mask, yeah. he was cast as Marty. Have you seen the footage of Eric Stoltz as Marty from the time? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks he looks decent. He yeah. looks quite good. Yeah, well, he's a good actor. He is I good actor. No, he's an excellent actor. Yeah, he is. It's just not funny, no, is no, it? It's not. No. I think that's the problem. Yeah. And, I mean, Stoltz did film quite a few scenes as Marty, but the film didn't have the laughs that Zemeckis wanted. Stoltz actually said to Zemeckis one time that he saw the film as a tragedy, not a comedy, mm. because the world and people Marty knew don't exist anymore. Right. And Zemeckis realised at that point that it wasn't going to be the film that he wanted to make. No. So, tragedy. six weeks into production, Stoltz was fired. Mm. And they went back to Family Ties. And this time, Gary Goldberg let Michael J. Fox read the script. And obviously, he said yes. Mm -hmm. God bless you, Gary. Gary Goldberg, thank you. Praise Jesus. Yeah, I mean, a dream job status, isn't it? My dream yeah. job. They clearly <laughs> believed in the material to go through that, that grueling schedule as well. Amazing. Absolutely, yeah. For me, I think Leah Thompson is brilliant at playing multiple versions mm -hmm. of the same character she in Lorraine. Great. I think she's especially great as the middle-aged depressed Lorraine we see at the start of the film. Yeah, yeah boozer. Girls these days, smoking pot, drinking booze. The person I'm going to talk about, though, is the antagonist of the piece. Tom Wilson is Aww. the school bully, Biff Tannen. Fantastic. <laughs> I think this is somewhere, actually, that the two Bobs got a little bit lucky with the script because, as a character, Biff, I mean, yeah, they wrote a few great lines for him. Why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? But as a character on the page, I think he's really two-dimensional. Mm -hmm. He's a bully, yeah. and that's about yeah. it. But Tom Wilson just makes him come alive and leap off the page, and I think elevates him to be a genuinely excellent bad guy. Mm. He's funny, but he's still a threat, and George's fear of Biff is, like, palpable. Yeah. And like Leah Thompson, Wilson plays three characters, basically. Middle-aged bully Biff, then young bully Biff, and then middle-aged wet blanket Biff. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and he's brilliant at all yeah, of them. Yeah. Really brilliant. Also, have you heard Tom Wilson's Back to the Future song? Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? Magnificent. Yeah. Yeah, so over the years, Tom Wilson kept being asked the same questions by fans, so he wrote a song that basically answers all those questions, and it is really, really funny. What's Michael J. Fox like? He's nice. What's Christopher Lloyd like? Kind of quiet. What's Crispin Glover like? Unusual. Stop asking me the question. But yeah, Biff is a really strong antagonist, and for me, a massive part of that is down to Tom Wilson's performance. I think he's excellent. yeah. yeah. I mean, I watch Wilson in anything because of this performance. I mean, admittedly, <laughs> that means that I'll be watching a lot of crap because he has <laughs> a couple of really can't be in glory after this. <laughs> but he's got such a likable screen presence, hasn't he? And despite being yes, the bad mm. guy. And well, look who you're going to talk about as your cast member. Yeah, well, like you, I mean, it's it's difficult to narrow down because there are so many likable characters in the film. I think we've got to give a big shout out to the legendary Christopher Lloyd as yeah, Doc Brown. Definitely. 
of course, constant source of exposition, which I like because, you know, I insist on it being very clear what's going on. <laughs> but I have to say that my favourite character is George. George Peeping Tom McFly. He's a peeping Tom. Love him. Not for that He's reason, obviously. He's a peeping obviously. Tom. <laughs> Despite that. Yeah. I mean, the writing of all the characters is great and no more so than with George. It starts in 1985. He's this weasley little fella that gets steamrolled like a cartoon character when we're introduced <laughs> to him and Biff slapping his oily hair. Hilarious. But by the end, he he's this athletic, successful writer, looking great and amazing family. And the writing beats that get us to this point, I am completely bought into. There are these incredible character moments. It's just so very funny. Even just physically cracks me up. Hilarious when he's getting kicked in the pants in school with a kick me sign on his back. Ha, ha, ha. Real mature guy spinning yeah. around with his hair flying everywhere. I mean, it's potentially psychologically damaging, bullying behavior, but nonetheless, you know, hilarious. Yeah, you love it, though. Um, and, yeah, it's great. And the moment when Marty catches up with him after school, why do you keep, keep following, following me around? around? Just really, really <laughs> funny moments, like from uh, mm. like from his performance point of view. The writing's great, but Glover gives this incredible offbeat spin that adds mm. a load of nuance yeah. to the character of George. Yeah. Yeah, he was in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, Crispin Glover, wasn't he? Oh, yes, he was. Some amazing dance moves. Crazy dance moves. Mm. It, it, um, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, as brilliant as Crispin Glover is here, there was quite a bit of friction on set between him and Zemeckis over a few things. So Glover wanted the 47-year-old George would see at the start of the film to have his hair standing straight up on end, like Henry Spencer in a razor head. <laughs> the problem was that already started shooting. So Zemeckis said, we can't do that, Crispin. It won't match what we shot yesterday. And Glover said to him, Brando never matched. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mention Brando. <laughs> and I think he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, Zemeckis said that he constantly had to ring Glover in because he would usually do whatever he wanted in takes, which, with deadlines to hit, must have been frustrating mm. as hell mm. for any director. Yeah. There was one time where Glover said to Zemeckis that he thought the McFlies shouldn't be well off when Marty gets back to 1985. You like this one, Matt. Just like yeah. you. He said, look, he said, yeah, he said, love should be the reward, yeah. not money. Zemeckis got really mad at me when I, I said this. And he, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he yelled. Yeah, he... I'll, I'll not mention it as Zemeckis than if I ever mention it. If I ever, if I ever meet him. You know what you should have done? <laughs> and Leah Thompson told a story about going to Crispin Glover's house one night so they could practice some scenes together. When she got there, she found that all the rooms were painted entirely black and Glover just wanted to paint a volcano with her. <laughs> And that's not a euphemism. You literally <laughs> wanted to paint a volcano with it. <laughs> that's amazing. Bizarre, I mean, man. it is such a shame that he went in the direction that he did because he's a bit of an oddball. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's happy mm. with it, but I'd have loved to have seen him in more mainstream films because mm. he's just he's just amazing in this. I mean, he didn't even come back for the sequels. Um, and yeah. the, the reason for that is because he was offered only half of what Leah Thompson and Tom Wilson were offered. It was rumoured that he wanted the same amount of money as Michael J. Fox, but he's disputed that. He said he felt he deserved more than less than half of Leah Thompson and Tom Wilson. Instead, they used a mould of his face from the original and built prosthetics around actor Jeffrey Wiseman's right. face to make him look like Crispin Glover. And then, you know, obviously turned him upside down as well. That helps. And Glover was understandably unhappy about this and filed a lawsuit, which he won. And that prevented this kind of thing from happening again. But yeah, I mean, Glover, a strange little fella. He currently lives alone in a 15 room mansion in Prague. Just like that. Very strange. Yeah, whatever the reason was, he was given the chop from the sequels. The casting Back to the Future then, pretty great all across the board, mm -hmm. and surely the definitive movie role for every one of them. Yeah, Perfect absolutely. Casting. Incredible. Music isn't something that we always single out when discussing a film, but Back to the Future features classic track start to finish, mm. an orchestral score provided by Alan Silvestri, and a range of pop music, including the film's signature track, the Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the News. Mm, yeah. You like Huey Lewis in the News? So, what are our thoughts on the music in Back to the Future? Look. Yeah, well, I just want to talk about that orchestral score that you mentioned, Al Alan Silvestri. Just a real highlight composed by Silvestri's 100 piece Out of Time Orchestra that he named him Out of Time Orchestra. <laughs> Fantastic. Lovely choice. Lovely. I just love mm. that there's a range of emotions in the film, and Silvestri somehow 
is able to keep up with it and he elevates every scene with his inclusion with his music there's a big difference between the main theme the moments of threat with biff and lorraine in the car to the emotional moments with marty and doc at the end zemex's direction to sylvester was that he wanted something big for the score sylvester claimed that there were no real big moments like sweep and vistas or panoramic scenery but he thought the archetypes were big like friendship and heroism so he applied the big moments in the score to the emotional beats. And you can feel that all the way through for me. I totally agree. I think the score is absolutely superb. One of my favourites. Very triumphant and bombastic. Yeah. A bit like a John Williams type score. Yeah. And I think this is probably mm, the best John yeah. Williams type score that isn't written by John Williams. Yeah, yeah, for me. And Matt, how do you feel about the music in the film? I love it. I love everything about the musical choices in this. The score is great. But I do want to mention the pop songs as well because... If you think of like the three different versions of The Power of Love, because obviously Jennifer Rush had one, Frankie Goes to Hollywood <laughs> had one called that, Huey Lewis, definitely the best of the three, isn't he? Ah, oh, it's, it's incredible. Just an absolute, it's, it's, a monster. it's just good vibes in a song. It's Total, <laughs> totally puts a smile on your face every time you hear that song. It's an absolute banger. But I do want to mention the period songs as well, because I think they probably work the best in the film, because you've got Earth Angel in there, which is just absolutely sublime. And... I've got a friend who saw Back to the Future at the Royal Albert Hall when it was um, accompanied by an orchestra playing along. And he, and he wrote Hall, a review for his blog, and, and the way he put it was, when the orchestra struck up for the end of Earth Angel, everyone promptly burst into tears. <laughs> Just oh. total punch <laughs> in the heart, isn't it? it? It's a beautiful song, beautifully used. And then it's such a genius move to follow that up with Marty playing Johnny Be Good because... After such an emotional moment, I think you just need a bit of comic relief. You just need something to like release you from that. And that's where you get with this ridiculous OTT version he's doing. <laughs> he's giving you the duck walks. You're getting the Pete Townsend windmills <laughs> playing behind his head like Hendrix. It's just an amazing song to use. And I think my favorite thing about it is when he's finished and he hands the guitar back to Marvin. It's the way Marvin looks at his guitar like... How did he get it to do that? <laughs> Where did that sound come yeah. from? Absolutely amazing. So yeah, the, the pop songs in this, the used uh, as good as any pop songs have been used in any film, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, regarding Johnny Be Good, I know that Chuck Berry, who owned the rights to the song because he wrote it, <laughs> he withheld the rights to it until the day before filming, oh, wow. which must have been stressful right. for yeah. them, I guess. And did anybody else ever think that was actually Michael J. Fox singing when they were a kid? I've always thought that. Because I, I always did. Yeah, convinced. It sounds just like yeah. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not him though. It's a guy called Mark Chapman who was a singer in a band called Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. <laughs> but it wasn't a coincidence that Mark Chapman sounds like Jay Fox. So the music supervisor on Back to the Future was called Bones Howe. Right. He put out a casting call to find someone who sounds like Michael J. Fox when he sings. Mark Chapman saw that ad practiced the song like Michael J. Fox, auditioned and got the part oh, wow. on the back of it. So he was intentional to sound Amazing. like him. Class. Excellent. J. Fox was taught guitar by Paul Hansen as well. He was in loads of rock bands in the 80s and, and he appears in Marty's awesome band, The Pinheads as well. Too Don Loud, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I think he's... <laughs> yeah, he's like the rhythm guitarist on the yeah, left-hand yeah. side, I think. Right. The music in Back to the Future then, great orchestral score, great pop music... Both pretty integral to the success oh, of the yeah, film. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. There's a lot of iconic moments in Back to the Future, and now we're going to talk about our highlights from the film. So, Luke, what's your highlights from Back to the Future? Oh, so many. But I'm going to start us off with the "I'm Your Density" scene in the <laughs> diner that's followed by the skateboard chase. <laughs> Just lovely. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful stuff. This is an extension of what I was talking about before with George. He's hilarious when he walks into that diner. And that guy has never been cooler. Lou, give me a milk, chocolate, bang. Who doesn't want to pull that move off? So he goes from like the coolest man in the world, but then it all falls apart when he speaks to Lorraine. Even though he's got handwritten notes, which he's trying not to hide, he's got them right in front of her face. Yeah. He completely messes it up with the I'm your density bit. Just so funny. Yeah. And there's this, it's incredible, just so many little details afterwards. Biff comes in. And McFly! And he walks past this poor, unassuming guy at the, at the counter and just pushes him out of the way. 
Just uh, you're in my face, <laughs> yeah, get out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's not even in the way though, he's just like sort of standing yeah. at the side. <laughs> just walk past Such him. a funny detail. But yeah. Marty in the skateboard chase, amazing stuff. Talk about setup and payoff, waving at people in the diner as he flies past at the back of the yeah, car. Yeah, great. Yeah. And as does that final moment where Marty hops onto the hood of the car, traverses Biff's goons, mm. and then lands on the board at the back while they slam into the manure truck. <laughs> that is just what a set piece that is. And yeah. then coming full <laughs> circle, Lorraine looking on like a lovesick puppy, and George skulking <laughs> off in the background, still with his notebook <laughs> in his hand. <laughs> that screwed that in, hasn't it? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you mentioned the chocolate milkshake there, and there's a behind-the-scenes blooper where Lou throws the milk to George, and he completely misses it, and it just falls on the floor, <laughs> which is what would probably happen in yeah, real life. Yeah. <laughs> for my highlight, I'm going for one of the biggest plot points in the film, the moment that George decks Biff. Yeah. What a punch. Yeah. One of the best. What a moment. So satisfying. I mean, there's literal lightning not long after this, but this is like a narrative lightning yeah, bolt. Lovely. The cuts between a helpless Lorraine, humiliated George and laughing Biff, and then the close-up on George's fist as it clenches, mm, mm. the way Biff spins around and slides down the car, then the way Lorraine looks at George afterwards. All brilliant. But my favourite thing is probably the build-up to yeah. it where George strides up to the car, bald as <laughs> brass, because he's expecting to see Marty yeah. in there. But it's Biff, his worst <laughs> nightmare. And Biff says turn around yeah. and walk away and George is terrified he's desperate to leave but for the first time ever he stands up to Biff and says no Biff you leave her alone he's brave as a lion I often well up when he does yeah. that no Biff you leave her alone well, I think one of the reasons it feels so powerful is because basically every plot thread in the film rests on that mm-hmm. moment if George doesn't deck Biff he doesn't complete his arc mm-hmm. Lorraine becomes an alcoholic, Marty will cease to exist, Doc will die. So basically the entire narrative all comes together in that one mm-hmm. punch. Just what great writing mm-hmm. that yeah, is. I agree. And, I mean, what a punch. <laughs> oh, it's probably the most satisfying punch in movie history. It's beautiful because, like yeah, you said, there's so much yeah. writing on it for everyone. Yeah. Incredible yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 And Matt, mm-hmm. what's your highlight from the film? I'm going to go for the end when Marty finally makes it back. There's some lovely foreshadowing to this, isn't it? Because in that opening scene of Docs, one of the clocks has a little figure of Howard Lloyd hanging off it, which is from Safety Mm -hmm. Last, one of his most famous films. Even if you haven't seen it, you will know the image of Howard Lloyd just dangling off that (laughs) clock face. Mm -hmm. And what I really like, it's it's that Doc gets this moment to himself, which is really tense. And it's the editing as well, because fundamentally, it's only small little things that are going on here. You know, the lead is just snagged under the tree, but it feels so dramatic. And then when he gets a tree, he's disconnected it further Mm -hmm. down the line so he has to sort it out at, at the base level and while he's doing that the DeLorean chooses this moment not to start and it's what this <laughs> film does so well which is just piling up levels of jeopardy after jeopardy are like oh god now this has gone wrong and they've got to deal with it mm-hmm. it's a proper nail-biting scene because even if Marty's approaching that line he doesn't know if, the, if Doc is going to fix it in time it's just edge yeah. of your seat stuff because you know they've got this right, one right. shot at getting it right and mm. when he hits that line and he gets sent back, I love how it just ends on a bit of silence. And it's like, it's your <laughs> cue to relax now because I just feel the last few minutes I haven't taken a breath. It's such great edgy seat stuff. Also, we talked earlier about some changes to the original script. And one of the biggest changes was that at first, this whole clock tower sequence wasn't the climax of the film. All right. So... Instead, there was going to be a nuclear test site in Nevada. Marty and Doc would have to sneak into this site, and the nuclear explosion would send the DeLorean and Marty back to the future. They changed it because it would be too expensive to do, Mm. but I mean, I'm glad it was too expensive, because the ending we get is just perfect. perfect. It has to end in Hill Valley, surely. It has to end in Hill Valley. Of course it does. That's it then. We're Mm. approaching the end. Time for one more thing, though, and that's to give our scores for Back to the Future. Let's do it. Matt, you first mm-hmm. then, please. Your summary and score for Back to the Future. Yeah. You'd have to be hard-pushed, I think, to find anyone who doesn't enjoy the hell out of this film. 
I think it's it's impossible not to surely because it delivers so many different aspects and it just pitches them all perfectly. It's it's like the greatest buffet you could ever go to because if you want comedy, you've got comedy. If you want romance, you've got romance. If you want action, you've got action. If you want emotion, you've got emotion. And it's all tied together with some brilliant music choices, wonderful performances from everyone, and a plot that is just so well-crafted and thought through. It should be taught at film school. You know, day one of film school, how do you write a plot? Just watch Back to the Future. That tells you how you write a plot. Mm. And it's just uh, incredibly well-paced, so enjoyable. It is just a little tiny few little flaws in there for me, just with the character writing, with Lorraine in particular. You're beginning to sound just like my mother. I do think some of the 80s attitudes towards commercialism haven't aged particularly well. And it is a film where, if I'm honest, I watched it loads when I was younger. It's just one I don't tend to revisit that much these days. I'm not sure why, to be honest, there's nothing in particular that puts me off watching it. I don't know if maybe I just don't get into the whole 80s nostalgia thing as much as some other people. But, yeah, it's one I don't go back to all that often. So only little flaws, but because of those, it just misses out on being in my top tier of films. So it ends up with a 9.5. Oh, slammed. Controversial. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute slamming. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for me, I mean, what can you say? It's a great film, a truly mm -hmm. great film in my eyes. The cast are fantastic at worst, mm -hmm. iconic at best. Mm -hmm. The visual work from the likes of Dean Cundy as DP and ILM as a visual effects house is stunning. Zemeckis' direction is Spielberg level. The screenplay is one of the best to come out of Hollywood. Basically, this is a film where just about everybody coming to it brought pretty much their best ever work. Lightning in a bottle, like I said mm -hmm. earlier. It's... Quite the coincidence that arguably Hollywood's most famous time travel film is also one of Hollywood's most timeless movies. Mm, oh, it just hasn't aged, I don't mm. think. And in some alternate timeline somewhere, there's a film called Space Man from Pluto <laughs> starring Eric Stoltz, and it's a six out of ten. <laughs> but in this timeline, Back to the Future starring Michael J. Fox, that's an easy ten out of ten for me. Yes, yeah. More honest. Lovely. Very nice. <laughs> oh, here we go, yeah. That's more like it. <laughs> Think on your sins, Matt. <laughs> and Luke, your final summary and score for BTTF? Please. Yeah, it's not going to be a surprise. Um, it's got everything that you want from a blockbuster film. There's just the spectacle alone. It's incredible. But then there are these additional layers like the memorable performances, at least half a dozen real standouts. Then great special effects, mm. Zemeckis at his peak from a directing point of view and also the writing. I mean, just some of the best. We mentioned it. Get only one of those elements right and you're under a winner with a blockbuster film. But all of them combined mm. is the reason mm. why I believe it's endured so strongly for me and most audiences. It's a 10 all day long. Lovely. Yeah. So, well, overall, that leaves Back to the Future with, I'd already written 30 out of 30 <laughs> Sorry. in my script here. I, was just, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that I was in. nailed on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like a little curveball in there every now and then. <laughs> oh, we're yeah. doing This is heavy. <laughs> so 29.5 out of 30 oh, is the final score. Yeah. And that's all we have on this episode of The Cutting Room. To support us in what we do and to gain access to extra bonus videos, please support us on Patreon. Your help and support is massively appreciated. And the more support we get, the more videos we can and will make. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. We're going to make like a tree and get the hell out of here now. So we'll see you so long for now. And thanks for yeah, watching. Thanks, everyone.